This message first aired on the radio on February 12, 2004. We're continuing today in the first epistle to the Corinthians, and we're in the 13th chapter, and we were there before. And we want to attach on to what we've been saying, and we want to extend our exegesis and our teaching of this chapter, hopefully to the end of the chapter today, and we think by the grace of God we'll be there. But before we do, we want to reintroduce a couple of the themes that are carried on here, maybe backtrack a little bit, pick up a little bit. But what the Apostle is doing in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, is he is introducing the way to excellence, the way to excellence. Now, in the King James Version, it says a more excellent way, and the thought there is a good one. But you remember we said that more excellent is really a bit of a contradiction in terms. More is a comparative. Excellent is a superlative, and you can't really compare one superlative to another superlative. You can't be more than excellent. So it's not a more excellent way, but a a way by comparison to excellence. And what is this way compared to? Well, it's compared to the way uh, that is present in Corinth today at the time of the writing. And that way was the way of the charismata. Now, never was it the case that the charismatic gifts were given as merely the way for Christians to practice. In other words, Christian practice was never spiritually excellent because of gifts, because of spiritual gifts or charismatic gifts. This never marked excellence in the way that Christians conduct themselves. In fact, here is an apostolic church, therefore marked with all the charismatic gifts, which, by the way, don't operate outside the apostolic period. But here's a church gifted in every way, apparently, as many ways as we can find in the Scripture. The Corinthian church gifted that way, and yet a carnal church, not a spiritually high-quality church. And the reason is because they were not following the way to excellence. In fact, they were following the way to their own personal reputations and their own personal agendas. And so with their own agenda in mind instead of God's agenda in mind, the Corinthians went about their schismatic working, their attempts to draw followers after themselves or draw attention to themselves. And the apostle here is dealing with that whole area of ministry where it have impacted the church. And prior to the time of doing that, which he'll demonstrate with certain disciplines imposed upon the use of the charismatic gifts, in the 14th chapter, he first introduces the road to excellence, which he points out is permanent and not temporary. And of course, he's doing a comparison to the operations of the Spirit of God in the day of the Corinthian church. And this is a more excellent way for two reasons. One, because it is marked by spiritual excellence or spiritual goodness as opposed to carnality. And the second reason is that it is a lasting way. It is that which is going to last. The Corinthians are focused on something that's not going to last. So that's a briefly comprehended summary of where we've been in our broadcast here at BibleStudy.net. And if you care to understand better what I've just here summarized, then look at the archives and you'll find where we took up the first eight verses or the first seven verses and a phrase of the eighth verse prior to this particular teaching. Now, in light of that, then, 
what is this road to excellence? Well, the road to excellence is here defined as the road of agape, or love. We would say this, God's love. And we have later taught to us in the epistle of 1 John, we have epistle 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 19, this statement in the King James, we love him because he first loved us. Now, We'll correct that a little bit because we believe it's more accurately rendered. We love because he first loved us. And I'll take a little bit of a side road here because I do use the King James Version of the Bible. And you may wonder why I do that and why I consider that me, that just a guy who has studied the Scripture and that teaches the Bible, just a brother saved by grace, when teaching the Bible can portend to correct the King James Version that has lasted uh, nearly 400 years. Well, let me tell you why I use the King James Version. First of all, I believe that the translators of the King James did use the actual Bible as God preserved it as the basis for their translation. But I'll distinguish myself from those who believe that the English translation itself was inspired. I do not consider the English translation inspired. I consider it providential. I sure thank God that there was a time of productivity and peace enough that the English Bible came into our hands. But by no means do I consider that it is an inspired translation. If there was an inspired translation of the Bible, then we have it in the majority text and in the uh, I believe the the Hebrew version of the Bible protected by the Mazorah. Now that being said, if the Bible was written in any parts in a different language, God inspired a translation, kept the translation, got rid of the original because he wanted us to have the translation instead of the original. I say that because there are some students of the Bible, and I know they listen to this broadcast, who consider, for example, that the Gospel of Matthew may have originally been written in Hebrew, and then translated into Greek. I'll just say this, the autograph text in that case is the Greek text, it's not the Hebrew. You may say, well, how could it be the autograph if it's the original? And I'll just say God inspired the entire process because he has given it to us according to his promise of preserving his word in the Greek language. Now, I acknowledge that there are very many Hebraisms in the Greek, but I'll tell you that there doesn't need to be a Hebrew autograph for Hebraisms to have found their way into the Greek language because there were plenty of agile Hebrew-speaking people who depended on Greek for their speech instead of Hebrew. We see that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, if this is all boring to you, that's okay. Don't let it bother you. But I do want to clear myself in the use of the King James. So maybe you would say, well, why do you use the King James Bible? And I'll give you a couple other reasons. I don't think the translation is inspired, but I do think that it was a wonderful thing that the King James Bible came to us without a copyright and nobody owns it. And so it's free. And in, in so being free as a piece of intellectual property, I think it accurately reflects the grace of God. I do not approve of the licensed versions of the Bible. I don't know what it is that would convince somebody in an honorable way to copyright their translations in this day where intellectual property is such a great problem for the common man. So I don't understand the copyright. You may say, 
well, it needs to be copyrighted to protect its integrity. And I'll tell you, there are other ways of licensing to protect integrity that don't involve the ability to punish those who use it or to get money. Now, I say that because you may want to know that despite the fact that I approve of the King James Version and I use it, I am not one of the people who believe that the King James Version is God's only version. Second reason I use the King James Version is because I used, I've been using the King James Version. I've been using it for a lot of time. I switched from a different version of the Bible to the King James in a studious way, and there are so many wonderful tools available to study the language that that's why I use it. Well, having cleared that now, I believe that 1 John 4.19 is better rendered. We love because he first loved us. And I realize that that has to do with textual criticism. And I'm sure I'm believing somebody else's textual criticism, not especially capable of doing that myself. But it makes a lot of sense to me that we have the capacity for agapeo. We love because God came to us with agapeo when he sent his son to die for us. And he created that ability to love based on principle with the new nature that he gave to us. So we have the ability supernaturally given to us in the new nature to agapeo. And it is because God inaugurated the process. Now if we are to be his body on earth and we are to accurately be a reflection of his movement, then everything we do must be marked by that very characteristic of God, agapeo. And we do find out also in John's epistle that God is love. Not, God not only loved us first, but he is principled love. And there is no other form of principled love. I get a bit of a, an antagonism in my spirit when I hear the world talk about stop the hate, we want to love each other, and they have no idea about what love really is or what hate really is for that matter uh, when they don't understand the love of God is expressed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so intent is God upon this principle of operation in our lives that he did away with all else to demonstrate who we are to the world. And so how does the world know us? Well, we're a proper reflection of God's love, and we find out that the world will know us, the world that looks on will know us, by the way that we love. And that love is not without object. They'll know us by the way that we love one another. One another. And so Christian love, agapeo or agape, love, must be expressed first and foremost among the Christians. Well, you can love based on principle the world, okay? But in fact, the best place to practice this is in the body of Christ with your fellow believer. Now, if you're not with your fellow believer, if you're one of the great unchurched masses, if you have nowhere to practice this, I can tell you flat out, there is no way you can practice the Christian life here. You cannot practice agape without being in the body of believers. Now, maybe you have a hard time. You say, well, you know, I can't even find a decent church in my small town, or I can't find a decent church in my big city. Well, let me tell you, God has a place for you to practice the faith. You commit that to Him, God will give you the opportunity to live the Christian life. And of course, you'll have persecution in it. Well, now we come to the eighth verse of 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we see that love never falls. Love, if we'll practice this way, will never fail, and because love never falls down. Love stands up through all things. That attaches that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This has to do with love thinks no evil or doesn't take wrongs into account. This has to do with the fact that love is based on principle, and so it is unmovable by circumstance. It is unmovable by history. And that's something we need to think about. The new nature that God has given us is unmovable in its inherent characteristics by circumstance or history. There is nothing anyone can do to you, nor is there anything that you can do to yourself that will damage the properties of that new nature or the virtue of that new nature. This corresponds to the certitude the Lord Jesus gave us that no man is able to pluck us out of his hand, neither is anything, as we read in the book of Romans, able to separate us from the love or agape of God. We always have this created capacity to love based on principle. Marvelous treasure that we have in earthen vessels, isn't it? And in fact, that's what the apostle said, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the glory may be to God and not to us. Of course, if we carried this treasure around in our resurrection bodies today, we'd be so arrogant. But God has seen to it to give us this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power and glory would go where it belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. So love never falls. Love never falls. God, who is love, never falls. He always is on target. And that new nature that we're given is always desiring to please Him. And so now, we see on the other hand, on the other hand, verse 8 marks a distinct disjuncture of the way to excellence, or the road to excellence, and the way that was being practiced in the Corinthian church. And I say the way that was being practiced, not in its moral characteristic, but in its actual emphasis. Because while while love never falls, something else does fall. In fact, several somethings do fall. And that's what we're going to take up here today. We're going to take up those things which fail. Well, what are they? Well, verse 8, But whether there be prophecies they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. King James Version. Well, here we have actually this. We have prophecies are going to fail. They're going to fail. Just as love doesn't, prophecies are going to fall. Knowledge is going to fall. It's translated vanish away. It does mean that. Knowledge is going to stop. Prophecy is going to stop. Those two things will fall. uh, Tongues will cease. Different word. When we come back, we'll look at it more completely. But that word means it will stop of its own accord. So we have three things here that he distinguishes. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. And they're all going to stop. But the road to excellence is going to go on. We have a marvelous correspondence here in the 8th verse with the 1st and 2nd verse where the apostle distinguished, though I have the gift of tongues, verse 1, I have the gift of prophecy, verse 2, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, verse 2. So here we have a correspondence in verse 8. The apostle says, though I have these things, 
I do not have spiritual quality unless I have love. Now he's saying, these three things that I talked about that without love do not amount to spiritual quality, they're all going to go away. The question is when, isn't it? And we'll take that up when we come back after this brief announcement. I'm John Malone, and you're listening to BibleStudy.net. Well, we come back to this subject of the ceasing of tongues and the stopping of prophecies and knowledge. And we find out that in, in the 8th verse of 1 Corinthians 13, the apostles personalizing these gifts, he said, whether there be prophecies, and of course there are prophecies in the Corinthian church at the time that he's writing, there are prophecies, there are therefore prophets giving them. He said, these things will come to nothing. These things will become disabled. They will no longer operate. That's what it means. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. They'll become disabled. They'll no longer operate. They're temporary in time. And we'll see the consistency of that treatment throughout the end of this chapter. Whether there be tongues, they will stop. They will cease. He personalizes tongues and says they're going to cease. This is the same word where the apostle said he wouldn't cease praying for his beloved brethren. This is the same cease where uh, we find that evildoers would not cease from their evil doing. Here is tongues personalized. It says, if there be tongues, or whether there be tongues, they will cease. They will stop their working. And here it says, whether there be knowledge, it shall become disabled. These are three things that are not permanent. That is in comparison to the road to excellence, which is the road of agape, which is permanent. Friends, these things were told to the Corinthians and therefore told to us and told to all the churches, if you remember 1 Corinthians 1-4, all the churches in every place that these operations, which were certainly operating in the apostolic church, certainly part of the more eminent charismata, chapter 12, the last verse, that these things would stop. They're temporary, and that is the main reason that they are inferior. You could say, well, of course, even exercising these charismata, the Corinthian church could cure its defects and its unspirituality. That's a true statement, and the apostle is going to give them a route to do that in the 14th chapter by imposing certain disciplines upon them. However, there is no way when these things have stopped that you can continue trying to exercise them. This is like trying to drive a car that's out of gas or that has no wheels or anything else. These gifts no longer operate. And you say, well, what about these people that say they do? Well, they're saying against the scripture that something operates. And therefore they're wrong. And not only are they wrong, but you begin to wonder why they say it. Why do they believe that which is not true? These gifts, by the way, friends were not in question in their operation. Nobody disputed their operation. Even unbelievers did not dispute the operations of these gifts. They were indisputable. They were remarkable. They were signs and they were wonders. Instantaneous knowledge without studying. Prophecies that were testable in the local and absolutely 100% true 
and the speaking of languages without ever having learned them that were comprehensible uh, by those who spoke the language that heard it. And they were full-blown languages. The scripture teaches this very clearly. Now, I'm not going to go into that right this minute because I want to make an emphasis of what the, for one, because the apostle didn't go through all that. And secondly, I wanted to make an emphasis of what he's really teaching here. He's teaching a road to excellence, and he's teaching, therefore, that something is going to be put away and something else is going to remain. So we come now here to the ninth verse. We come now to the ninth verse, and we come to the tenth verse. And I don't want you to be ignorant, neither did the Apostle want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual things, because the way that you look at these verses is going to have a big impact on the way you live your Christian life and the way that you esteem the Word of God. Verse 9, For we now know in part, and we prophesy in part. This is what the Apostle says. This reminds me of the partial blindness of Israel. We had that great mystery taught to us that Israel is temporarily and partially blind. The word part here has to do with temporariness and not completeness. It has to do with a temporary condition and it has to do with an incomplete condition. We know in part. Now what does that mean? Well, it says that we can learn. This has to do with knowing things. This has to know with getting to know things. We can only get to know, he's telling the Corinthians, partially. We can't get to know uh, completely. That was the state that they were in. And then he says, and we prophesy in part. That is to say, we prophesy partial of part of the truth, and, by the way, this is a temporary condition. So in both cases, knowledge and prophecy, that's what he's dealing with, knowledge and prophecy. How can we do without more knowledge and more prophetic thought or teaching? Well, of course, it's a good question. He says right now we know partially. We may have this miraculous instant knowledge, but we don't know everything. We know some things that we've never had to learn. We have prophetic teaching that is just given to us by God, but it's partial. We know in part. We prophesy in part. This is a, both a temporary condition and it is a minimalist condition or it is an incomplete condition. So the question really comes down to this. Well, would you like to have knowledge without working and these wonderful prophecies, but it's only a temporary situation and it's not complete? Or would you rather have a permanent condition of the complete deal? Well, most people of prudence would say we prefer a more complete set of information and a permanent state of it. And that is what makes the road to excellence an excellent way that is better than the Pentecostal way. It is better than the Apostolic Church way. We have something better. But the Corinthians didn't, and the Apostle includes himself. He said, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But, and thank God for the disjunctive condition here. Thank God for verse 10. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Here it is, we have that which is perfect. We have here that which is completed, 
that the word perfect here means fully matured or means completed. He said, when that which is completed is come, then that which is partial will be done away. Actually, it's just a logical syllogism here. He says, when that which is complete, fully done, this is the word teleos, when that which has reached its completion or its final end is done, then that which is in part will be done away with. So there's something reaching its completion at this part. Now many people jump right in here and say, well, when that which is perfect has come, that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. Well, let me tell you a few evidences why that isn't the case. And I'll give you first the contextual evidence the contextual evidence. Remember, a text is a pretext if it's not in its context. There is no context here whatsoever for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about the Lord's second coming. We're not even talking about the Lord here. We're talking about prophecies. We're talking about knowledge. We're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And you remember that at the beginning of the 12th chapter, we said there are various gifts there are diversities of gifts but one spirit so we're talking about the operation really of the new nature in harmony with God the Holy Spirit we are not talking about the Lord otherwise we'd be the Lord Jesus Christ otherwise we'd be talking about administrations and not about gifts but here we're talking about the gifts well you may say well those contextual arguments don't really persuade me well I'm gonna caution you they should but maybe they don't then let's just look at the word that, when that which is perfect has come. We do have a neuter term here. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, are not neuters. They are males. And the Lord Jesus Christ is no that. He's a him. He's a him. And if the scripture was going to say, he who is perfect comes, we would have uh, the word for, uh, we would have a male word here for the Lord Jesus Christ. It would not be a neuter term, that which is perfect. We would have him who is perfect. So the question is, well, what is that which is perfect? When it's come about, then that which is partial shall be done away. What does it mean done away with? Well, that means put away permanently. You say, well, you're just saying that. No, I'm not just saying that. The apostles saying that in verse 11. He says that himself in verse 11. Here it is. He gives an analogy. He says, you want to understand that? Here is the analogy. When I was a child, I spake as a child. Well, how did a child speak? Well, he speaks with a language that is very minimal, that is very unclear. And it doesn't stay that way. It's cute. You know, I have this with my grandchildren. My, my grandchildren are just, well, they're the best grandchildren in the whole world, of course, and my grandchildren are cute. I know many of you that are listening have grandchildren, but as you probably have already figured out, my grandchildren are cuter than your grandchildren, and they're smarter, and they're just more special than yours, and you'll just have to live with that. But here, it, when my grandchildren speak, they have their little languages. Now, I have a little granddaughter that she wants to speak uh, King James English, She's three, and uh, she, she says interesting things, but she always pro uh, properly pronounces it. But her two brothers have their own little invented language, and then in my other family of grandchildren, uh, uh, they have an invented language that these children have that only the other children can understand. 
and it's cute, and I have a little bit of back and forth with my wife because my wife's a stickler about language, and she's busy always teaching the right language, and she's correcting the language while I'm just enjoying these things and beginning to reflect it back because I play with the kids, and she teaches them, and uh, sometimes that comes into conflict. Of course, I do teach them while playing, but uh, different matter. In any case, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. Well, what's a child's language? Well, it's very minimal. It's a bit unclear. In fact, uh, as I say, sometimes it takes a special interpreter. Uh, when, when I had uh, one of my grandchildren, and he would talk, very good communicator, probably the best communicator in his family, very bright kid. Of course, all my children are very bright, as you, as you know. But uh, I would have to ask the other children, what did he say? Perfect example of the speaking in tongues in the early church. Perfect example. Some guy gets up, says something in a language I do not understand. It needs to be interpreted. That is how children speak. They need interpretations. They have um, you know, minimal things that they say. They have to repeat themselves, so forth. It's a language that is cute, and it impresses the attention. And uh, you might have some fun with it. But it's incomplete expression, and it's not what you really want for good communications. And they get a little older, all that stuff isn't cute anyway. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. Now here he's saying, look, this is the childhood phase where both speaking and understanding are immature. That's why you can tell your children or grandchildren preposterous stories and they'll believe it. Now, if you're a woman, then you always want them to be correct and say the right things. But if you're a man, then you're happy to share with your friends and so forth the ridiculous things that your children and grandchildren say. And in fact, it's even fun to go ahead and go along with them and teach them even more ridiculous things. That's what I do in any case. As a matter of fact, however, I do not teach them ridiculous things about faith. So uh, if you want a little advice, Neither my children nor my grandchildren ever believed in Santa Claus. I never tried to get them to do that. Never tried to get them to believe in the Easter Bunny or things like that. I don't care for those uh, notions, especially as they begin to tinker with their faith. But you understand just here that children have a different kind of understanding. And it's funny in a child, but it's not funny in an adult. It's cute in a child, their speech. It's not cute in an adult. Neither is their thinking. Children think rather unusually and not uh, really especially usefully when they're children. But it's appropriate for children. It's not appropriate for adults. Well, that's what the Apostle says here now as he makes the analogy of the operation of the charismatic gifts among the Corinthians. He said this is kid stuff. Now, let me tell you something. It's kid stuff, and it gets put away when the child stage of the church is over with. And that's what he said. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, here we have this putting away. We have the childish things, or the things of a child, and uh, he did away with them. This is the very same word as we find in verses 8 and 10. Whether there be prophecies, they'll be put away. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be put away. These are things put away like a man puts away his kid toys. He puts them away, and you know what? When a man puts away his kid toys, that's it. He doesn't play with them anymore. 
He doesn't play with them anymore. He may refer back to them in his memory, but he doesn't play with them anymore. That's not a manly thing. And so, okay, some of you guys I know, you know, but we won't tell. But the, the thought here is, when I became a man, I put away my childish things, and I no longer thought as a child, I no longer understood as a child, I no longer speak as a child. And here is the apostle referring back to his own self, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. He refers back to his own self and to the normal growth of a human being to teach the normal growth of the church, which is his body, out of the charismatic gifts and into maturity. Well, we haven't talked about that which is perfect yet. We know what it isn't. Well, what is it? We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to John Malone and BibleStudy.net. Stay with us. Don't give up. This is good. As I look at this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and its abundant clearness and how carefully it answers uh, the questions that arise in the mind of the reader, and how thoroughly it takes care of the questions that are so much at issue in the practices of the churches, one wonders why it is uh, that we don't all very easily come to the same conclusion. Well, let me tell you something. The agendas of men are not absent here. And uh, the reason that there's controversy about 1 Corinthians 13 is that men have their own agendas. They want to have their distinctives to rally people to themselves. They want to have uh, something impressive to the flesh that will draw uh, large numbers of people and the consequential large number of dollars and so forth. Men have all kinds of reasons for their own agendas. It is not easy to make the mistake that charismatic gifts still operate when they don't. They were not difficult to distinguish. They were miraculous works of awe, and no one could mistake them when they happened, whether gifts of healing, whether signs, wonders, gifts of languages, or the gift of tongues. It was not mistakable. It was not something controversial. It was obvious. So you may ask me, or you might not ask me, but I'll tell you anyway, why is it that different people teach different things about these gifts? Well, I have some answers for you. We have in Romans chapter 15 that there are those that serve their own bellies or their own desires. They'll have reasons to do that. Uh, recently, for example, this chapter was taught in a large church in Omaha, Christ Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. And the leader of that church, Bob Thune, is also a member of the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, Board of Directors or whatever their head group is. When he came to this part, he diverged from the text and said something like this, when you wake up in the morning, you got to look at reality, and of course there are all kinds of good people speaking in tongues, missionaries included. Well, of course, that's not true. When you wake up in the morning, you need to turn to the Lord, open your Bible, and study it, and see that these things uh, ceased. These things don't happen. And, of course, uh, whether you believe it in the Scripture or you go out in the empirical world and see if languages actually are happening in miraculous ways, they're not. That's why I have a bounty out there for anybody who can give me a verifiable example of a miraculous healing or a speaking in other languages without ever learning it. And of course it doesn't happen and 
I'm not worried about that bounty ever being claimed because, oh, it's a thousand bucks, by the way, but it could be ten thousand. I don't have to worry about it ever being claimed because these things, in fact, aren't happening. So why would a guy like Bob Thune say that? Well, he has a denomination that has an unbiblical principle. Christian and Missionary Alliance. Of, uh, I used to attend a Christian Missionary Alliance church. In fact, met my wife in one. Lots of very nice people, but not good doctrine, especially about this, where their doctrine is kind of a pansy attitude. Speak not, forbid not, when it comes to tongues. Well, who says speak not? Uh, the Bible says forbid not. The apostle gave that command in the context of the gifts actually operating, and I would not forbid anybody from actually practicing this apostolic and charismatic gift, but I don't have to worry about it because it doesn't happen. But does that mean that you tolerate the babbling? And who said, speak not? Uh, The Bible never said, don't speak in miraculous languages if you receive that gift. But the Christian and Missionary Alliance does, and so we need to uh, sustain our agenda instead of the Bible. Well, let me tell you, friends, that's just one example that I happen to know. I single the man out because he singles himself out as a great leader, and I think it's important that we not be misled. But what we need to do is pay attention to the Scripture. And worse than making an error in the Scripture, that happens to all of us who teach where we're just mistaken, But worse is where we're not mistaken, where we do see exactly what it teaches, but for our own reasons, we teach otherwise. That is a whole nother matter. And that's what I think goes on quite a bit, and I think that's what went on here with the Christian Missionary Alliance leader. Well, uh, that being said, look, here it says, that which is perfect has come. What is that which is perfect? Well, the apostle went on to talk about his own life, about how he put away childish things when he grew up, And let me tell you, he put away childish things because he knows these gifts in his own life that he's growing up and that he's growing in the grace of God and that he is growing in the revelation of God and writing out not only principles and practices but great mysteries which he couldn't teach the Corinthian church because they're hanging on to their carnal ways and to temporary things. And so he couldn't teach it to the Corinthians, but he will write it to the Ephesians, and then the Corinthians will get it later. So he said, here now we see the Word of God pictured in the Apostle Paul himself. And of course, why not? When I was a child, I spake as a child. He is the principal author. If you had to single out an author of the prophetic writings after the ascension and glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, it would be the Apostle Paul who predominates. Here he realizes that which is perfect is come is the full revelation of truth that God is giving to us. And friends, we have that. We have the scriptures. We have the scriptures. Now he makes one more analogy here in 1 Corinthians 13 to talk about that very thing, and we're going to look at it. It says in verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. The question is, when is now, and when is then? Well, now is easy. Now has to be true to the Corinthians. So he says, now we see through a glass darkly. Certainly the Corinthians saw through a glass in an enigma. That's what it means darkly, or in a riddle. 
Certainly the Corinthians had a riddle. They couldn't figure out the full counsel of God. They needed these miraculous gifts just to get them by. They did not have the other epistles. They did not have the Gospels. They did not have the book of the Revelation. These were without much of the prophetic writings. In fact, it's very possible that the first piece of prophetic writing that ever reached Corinth outside of the Old Testament, but the new prophetic writings, which we call the New Testament, it's very possible, even likely, that the first piece of those prophetic writings which came to them is this letter to 1 Corinthians. Now, they may have had James' epistle, wherein they would also see something about this glass. Now, this word for glass is a unique, is a different word for glass. It's used in two places in the Bible. It's used here in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's used in James chapter 1. And this, this piece of glass is the esoptron, the esoptron. It is, uh, in the world of glass, it is a development, but it's an early development. Uh, maybe you take glass for granted. I certainly do. But we have a marvelous technology in glass. I have a very close associate, very good friend of mine, who knows a lot about glass. In fact, don't tell anybody, but he's a glass glazer, and he can work with glass in all kinds of ways that he'd rather that people didn't know he could do so that he's not busy doing it all the time. But he knows all about glass. And uh, he tells me glass is actually still in a liquid state and some other things about glass. Of course, I've been in the computer business and I've been in the engineering field a little bit, tangentially, I would say I worked with a lot of engineers, and I come to find out that glass and its great insulation properties are ex extensively used for all manner of things. This is no surprise to anyone, the ceramics and so forth. We have all manner of technology that has emitted out of the use of glass. Well, this is a form of glass, the aceptron, a particular form of glass that was a mixture of stone and bone. In fact, it's not really glass in the silicate form that we would think of. It was a mixture of stone and bone that, that was able to be made rigid and allowed light to opaquely shine through. So it wasn't a clear thing by any means. It was, uh, therefore, we have the word darkly or enigma. Light got through it, but a lot of light was trapped by it. It was opaque. And so it let some light in, but not fully line in. He says, now we see through the glass, or a soptron, darkly, but then face to face. So it's not really face to face. If you look through an soptron and somebody was on the other side, you might be able to see the outline of a figure, but you couldn't see the face. So it is in the book of James. It says it's like the natural man that looks at himself in the soptron and goes away and forgets what manner of person he is. Well, he didn't get a good look. Uh, he, it's not like our mirrors where you get an exact, perfect look because of the way the silver backing or however mirrors are made today, I assume it's still something like that, renders an exact or near exact reflection of light, refracting it in minimal ways. They did not have such things. Yet we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the apostle is talking in a different way. So we look at the net, we're going to look ahead at the next epistle. We look at the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, and when he's talking about the Word of God there, he talks about how different it is than when Moses got the Word of God. When Moses got the Word of God, his face shone, and he put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel would not steadfastly look at the end of what was abolished, because from the time his face began to shine, 
his own face shine from looking at the law, it began to fade the moment he turned away from it. And so he veiled his face so that the children of Israel would not see the fading glory of the law which he got. And it says, which veil is done away in Christ? Now, verse 17, but now uh, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, and this is not the word for glass, this is the word for mirror. Mirror. This has to do with the kind of glass that apparently was available then, even then, much more expensive, no doubt, that actually rendered the image back to the viewer. Here it says, We all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Well, so when we look at the Word of God, uh, we don't see the fading glory that was Moses. When we look at the Word of God, we see the glory of the Lord. And miraculously, this is no mirror like you have in your home. Marvelously, as we behold His image, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. So here's the amazing operation. Why do you think we have BibleStudy.net? Well, we enjoy the Bible. We want you to enjoy it. But also we know that the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile, and that as we look into the Scripture, we see a proper image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and marvelously, miraculously, but unapparently, we are changed into his image. The Christian is to what? Not be uh, conformed to this world. He's not to let the world stamp him out like a molten piece of metal, Romans chapter 12, but he's to be transformed by what? The renewing of his mind. We, as it were, look in a glass and we see the reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a reflection of the new nature that is given to us. And we are transformed inside out, metamorphoso. We are transformed like the like the caterpillar to the butterfly as the Word of God does its marvelous operation in our life. Here it is, we fill our pot with water and the Lord miraculously turns it into wine. My friend, there is great truth in 1 Corinthians 13 and I feel like it's been stealthed away from us. People misinterpreting it, people teaching us wrongly about it, people distracting us off onto uh, either sloppy, what's called sloppy agape or mere human affection instead of the principled love that God gives us or else they divert us to yearning for some kind of supernatural gifting, obvious gifting that's not going to happen, and have us longing for something that is no longer happening and that was temporary in the first place, instead of turning our hearts to the real operation of God, which is the Word of God in the life of the believer. And friends, we don't have some temporary thing. We have that which is fully finished, that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part has been done away. Now we don't look through a glass darkly anymore. We don't look through a glass, a soptron, in an enigma. We look in the mirror of the Word of God. We have great liberty, and we are changed from glory to glory. We see the glorious new nature that He is. We see the glorious nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand the new nature that has been created like Him. And we see his transforming power on the principle of grace through faith 
in his word. Well, we come to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm kind of overwhelmed by how wonderful this really is. I'm a little torn because I think of how this truth is stolen from so many of God's people. But here we have verse 13, and now abides faith, hope, and charity, love, these three. But the greatest of these is agape. The apostle leaves the Corinthians with, this is now what abides. This is now what abides. Faith operating through love, hope operating through love, love operating in the new nature of the believer. Friends, we have the best. And we'll see why then, next time, that the Corinthians have disciplines put on the exercise of their apostolic or charismatic gifts. Uh, May the Lord bless you until we come together again.